Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Atlas Podcast. I'm Alex and I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello Alex. Hello, how are you doing? I'm fine. Excellent. Uh, I believe the, the topics we have lined up for today in the news are taking a look at the Rolls-Royce small modular reactors. Uh, our tech spotlight is going to be on the world of cloud computing. And later on, we have an interview lined up with a couple of the guys from Drama, or Guys and Girl, uh, Katie Milne and Adam Holloway. Yeah, a good lineup. I'm particularly excited to talk about the uh, SMR as I'm a chore child of the nuclear age. So uh, we'll explore a little Let's bit about that right when we get now. It's, it. uh, it's not something I'm familiar with, but as you said, you sort of cut your teeth in the world of nuclear so perhaps you can give us a little background on what these small modular reactors these SMRs actually are yeah so this was announced in the news um, a week or so about ago um, obviously a few years ago there was an announcement about the uh, new joint venture um, with China to build a, a large nuclear reactor um, uh, around size will be, which would be a, uh, a larger version of this. But the small modular reactors are very much um, more your, your, your local uh, endeavour, if you like. So um, far smaller, but a lot more, a lot more powerful uh, than necessarily um, your standard main means of uh, generating electricity. Um, but what that means is that we are moving to more of a distributed grid. Um, in, in years gone by, we've had large coal-powered stations, uh, which have been generating the base load. They've been supplemented with um, renewable energy over time. Obviously, those coal uh, stations are now pretty much closed down. If you have a look, we're really not generating a lot of coal power anymore. You've still got a lot of gas within that mixture. Um, but now, this will add to that base load that will allow things to be far more balanced and that baseload is really important for renewables to work effectively as well um, so yeah it's an interesting concept it's to me it came slightly came out of the blue and I think it's a yeah a great uh, new endeavor both from a, a scientific point of view um, and also an, an engineering or a manufacturing point of view so some, some different things involved with that okay and I mean it is it's uh in terms of reducing carbon footprint, it is one of the ways to go, isn't it, nuclear power? Because I know even despite the building will take up or produce an amount of carbon, once it's running, it's very minimal in terms of output. Yeah, and obviously uh, nuclear, to some people, is controversial. And I think um, you know Greenpeace have come out and said it had been better invest in hydropower or geothermic power. But the reality is these, um, these new types of new breeds of reactor can also help um, control some of the legacy um, issues with nuclear, which basically means they can be used to burn the old nuclear fuel as well. Um, so there's, not only are they generating new power, they can be used to solve some of the legacy issues before and learn from that. So um, it's, it's a... To me, it's the most sensible way to go forward, um, uh, and it's pretty known technology. Um, it's just making it far more agile um, source of power generation than we've had before. And in terms of implementation, what sort of time frame are we looking at here? Is it a, is it a done deal? They're going to go in? Is it? Uh, are we still in a sort of prospective phase? 
Yeah, I think the government released some uh, some money to do uh, some initial design work around it. So obviously there's some lovely diagrams out there on the on the internet of these kind of um, shell-like buildings but obviously that's one aspect that's an artistic impression of it but you've got to do some kind of feasibility study i mean there's going to be up to 16 of these um dotted around the uk um other countries are also looking at this type of technology so you've got everywhere from um, canada and america um, even turkey and people like that are looking at these types of technologies to meet their zero carbon targets and that's what we have to remember here is this is all about getting down to zero carbon mm. in the challenge of 20 you know 2030 um, and nuclear will go a long way to uh, help help that and is this very much a uh I mean, is the technology something Rolls-Royce have developed or is it multiple different companies who are producing it? Um, yeah, I don't know too much about that, but uh, obviously Rolls-Royce are um, a key member of um, uh, the nuclear industry anyway um, in the defence field. Um, but this is making it you know, consumable for um, the, the public and the civil uh, sector. So I think from Rolls-Royce point of view, this is very much about diversification. Mm. Um, you know, they've been hit pretty badly, as we've seen by the COVID situation. Um, will aerospace pick up to the levels it was previously? Well, that's also a part of the zero carbon um, debate, isn't it? Um, so, uh, yeah, this... this uh, this small small modular reactor endeavor really looks like a way for us to use our uh, high value manufacturing skills and knowledge that we've had um we, we were the first country in the world to create a domestic mm. um nuclear power station so even though we're not there with with the likes of france who uh, have got a huge percentage generated by nuclear power um we can regain some of that knowledge and skills i mean like i said i was born out of this if you like i was born up in scotland as part of the nuclear endeavor um and i did my apprenticeship at harwell where uh, which was a research establishment for um nuclear as well and they had a few fair few reactors there so um I can say I've actually stood on top of the primary of reactor. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. <laughs> many people's ambitions in life, but uh, you know, um, it does give you a more uh, real perspective about the both the dangers and actually what nuclear is really about. Um, um, it's about trying to create create that clean, uh, reusable energy um, and probably the bit that's often missed out is the reusability of nuclear because you can reprocess the fuel mm. and reuse it as well so yeah interesting very interesting um and yeah i mean obviously i think this whole episode is really looking towards the future uh, how we can use digital and what we're looking at in terms of uh, yeah sort of futuristic engineering so uh yeah what else what are, what other thoughts do you have on that with those regards yeah, I think digital is an important part here. Um, I think a lot of these grand projects, things like you know the HS2 and things like that, have often seen been seen as um, construction projects or civil projects. Mm. Where I think with the SMR, there's a huge opportunity here for us to look at digital from a point of view of um, those kind of cloud technologies, mobile technologies, how we can link across supply chains, um, you know, and that will go a long way to. Uh, prove some of the um, concepts around the scalability of what cloud technology and AI and these types of things can produce um, and take some of the um, 
if you like fear factor out of the the cloud we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that going on but um you know if if the uk especially wants to start a punching above its weight in digital mm. these are the types of projects that they can really start to um utilize some of those that know-how not just from an engineering point of view and really step up to uh, the the um, the ambitions of the fourth industrial revolution. Um, and I know the uh, digital, we're working with the digital catapult on um, a, a number of projects as well uh, on the five G five gem project, um, and with TWI and TWI are also one of the uh, consortium partners uh, in this, um, including particularly like Langer Rock as well, who we're also working in collaboration with. So, so yeah, some interesting collaborations there. I think that could. Um, uh, combine that kind of uh, construction world, the manufacturing and design world, and the digital aspect. Um, so it could really be used as a springboard for that as well. Yeah, coming back again, as we've spoken about previously to that, it is that fourth industrial revolution idea, that 4 R idea of the, the blurring of the lines between the physical and the digital. So it's all mm. coming together to produce incredible results. I think uh, probably hard to imagine 10 years ago. Yeah, and this is, you know, this if everything goes to plan in the way that is um, kind of proposed, this is you know, a 40-year project potentially, mm. um, which starts with the first one going operational um, within 10 years. So there's still some a lot of work to do. You've got to build the manufacturing facilities to be able to create these things. Um, you've got to create those supply chains, those collaborations, uh, all of that kind of thing. So, um, you know, it's, it's one step on the path uh, to something that I think is um, could have a real impact on our our zero carbon ambitions. Fascinating, and it's it's certainly something to keep an eye on for sure. Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, I think that's a, a nice place to roll into our tech spotlight for the week. I know you wanted to do some talking on uh, cloud computing on the cloud. Um, yeah, mainly specifically around is it possible to run a manufacturing facility from a mobile phone mm. um, because um, if, we, if we go back a few steps on this journey <laughs> coming back to when I was at if you like Harwell and Winfrith um, the the types of control rooms that were involved with these were very much you, you kind of if you can imagine back there they're great big control rooms with what they call mimic boards and those mimic boards um, had a set of buttons and switches and uh, and indicators um, and those mimic boards could be you know 20 meters uh, wide by 20 uh, five meters high or whatever like having a picture of the whole facility of all the valves and all the motors and all the pumps that could be controlled mm. um, and that was kind of the view of of how these things were done and there'd be a whole load of relay logic behind it uh, that would do the control aspects of it what that evolved into, and you could say in the uh, third industrial revolution, is when we started to introduce um, things like uh, programmable logic controllers, um, HMIs, human uh, interfaces, um, and more importantly, if you like, SCADA. So SCADA is um, Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition. Right. Um, and those, those technologies have really um, run manufacturing uh, facilities for the last... Um, 20 or 30 years <clears throat> uh, and you know 
when we think about how things have evolved outside of that other technologies and other approaches you know the fact that the internet has arrived um, social media has arrived uh, mobile phones and smartphones have arrived and yet a lot of the manufacturing facilities still fall back onto those technologies mm. uh, and and that's kind of that evolution from the push buttons and lamps to SCADA platforms which allowed you to create basically those same mimics that you had um, that were physical mimics on those great big 20 by 5 meter boards into a computer screen. Um, but you were still in effect clicking on those buttons and the lights were showing up and the graphics were changing and all this type of thing. So there's still a lot of, even though there's a level of automation, there's still a lot of manual control uh, around that. But when we start to talk about those new technologies and new approaches with the internet and things like that, uh, um, we've got to start thinking about how we evolve to the next level. Um, and what that really is, is a balance between uh, risk, um, if you like, and convenience or the power that convenience gives us. And that's kind of what the mo while the mobile phone has been so powerful mm. is because we have this supercomputer in our pocket. Um, and that allows us every day to do a load of stuff. But why not take that concept and apply it to a manufacturing domain? Uh, it, it's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah. The, the capability is there. Um, yeah, we're still in that position that we kind of trust that old technology. Um, we haven't really got those real examples or demonstrations of this new digital technology in a, in a, in a smart way. But actually what we've evolved to, if you look inside any kind of modern factory, um, a, a, a line or a work cell that an operator's working in, they could be surrounded by um, anything up to four or five computers. Mm. You've got one to control the machine. Um, you've got one that's got your... Uh, your 3D model, your design on it. You've got one that's got your stock supply coming. You've got another one that's got your um, order management system on it and things like this. So almost like that, that, that concept of having one great big grand control room um, has now been miniaturized and shrunk to an individual work center. But the poor operator is just surrounded by all this technology, which ultimately in the right way, you could fit everything onto your phone. Yeah, so it's sort of, it's it's advanced, but it's now become more complicated somehow. Yeah, it's got more complicated because the real estate built around it um, and the networking, because a lot of factories have traditional wired networking, they haven't gone to the mobile type networking, which, you know, with 5G, as we talked about, could be the next future of wireless technology inside uh, manufacturing um, and also it's called this OT IT convergence and what we talk about there the IT world doesn't like connecting to the operational technology world because it's not something they're used to connecting to so there's always this barrier between your office network and what we call the tech, tech LAN, technology network um, and and often those two things don't even bridge together um, and that has created these kind of differentiations between what we have in our office and our everyday work and what we actually see in the, in the manufacturing environment. And that has dictated the type of applications that have been developed as well. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a cause and effect um, uh, or even a circular argument being created 
where we have to be able to break that by demonstrating these types of technologies can are powerful enough for sure they're powerful enough um, but the maybe the apps aren't there today. Um, obviously, that's what we're working on because we see that as the future. Um, but uh, you know, it's more around the acceptance of taking that approach because if you're using a phone, you can run your factory off of your 4G network. Even uh, you know, there's a, there's an argument whether you even need a LAN or a tech LAN involved with that. Um, yes, you still need to have some kind of edge computing to translate that information from the internet to the OT world. Um, but there are a lot of edge IoT um, computing solutions out there today. Um, so if you actually imagine a new world, it could be just um, operators with their phones um, and a hidden edge device connecting to the machine. So no longer are they now surrounded by lots of screens or lots of computers. Um, now it's a lot more compact and uh, easily accessible and more convenient. Do you think this is coming uh, as an outsider? From what I've seen since being in the industry, some of the forward-facing approaches to manufacturing, things like additive manufacturing, seem to be built with this in mind and focused on you know, digital twinning and all the wonderful things that can come with cloud computing. Is what's whole, is one of the stumbling blocks that legacy manufacturing isn't built for it or just isn't ready to pick that up or what do you, how do you think that yeah. affects yeah it's a really good point because legacy is everything that we're talking about legacy does is something we look back on but it's also uh, and can be proud of but legacy also is what holds us back you know um, and with new technologies like additive manufacturing there isn't a legacy or if that legacy was it was in the uh, r&d world not in the high-volume manufacturing world. Um, so what that means is there aren't those applications, there aren't those uh, legacy systems there already, and therefore when people create something new, they create it with the latest technologies and the latest approaches. Um, and that's kind of what we'll see with the Drama Project because um, we've been working with the Manufacturing Technology Centre now for several years um, on this uh, large innovation project called Drama. Um, and it was a digitally reconfigurable additive manufacturing factory for the aerospace industry, as hopefully that spells drama. Bit of a mouthful, but I think it gets there, yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't so much of a drama in the end. It was a, good, a very good project that's uh, coming to the end now. But that, that facility itself has taken this approach, you know. Um, we, we, we don't have the SCADA systems or the legacy manufacturing execution systems. What we have is um, cloud-based apps that run the uh, facility. Um, and we have things like yeah, data lakes for managing data in an effective way. Um, and now that allows for um, plug and play of equipment on the shop floor where we might be using more API type integrations as opposed to OPC, DA, or uh, all those other types of technology. So, yeah, we use an MQTT to connect to sensors and devices, more in the kind of IoT framework. Um, but we really want to try to get into this industrial Internet of Things, which is really where connecting in a two-way manner, both sending instructions to machines and collecting data from machines, um, that's kind of in my definition of where the Internet of Things or the industrial Internet of Things is, is being able to have that two-way communication or two-way communi uh, conversation um, with the equipment via the Internet. 
And do you think, going back to your question then, obviously we have, uh, yeah, the sort of, the futuristic end of manufacturing ready to pick this up. Can a legacy facility begin to run their uh, operations from a mobile phone? Is there a pathway to that? Yeah, there definitely is. So this is the kind of green, uh, greenfield, brownfield um, debate. Um, but what you see a lot in uh, brownfield situations is lots of silos of information. Um, and the management of those silos of information, the management of the operating systems on those computers and everything like that actually costs a lot of money. And that whole management is kind of classed as architectural debt. Um, so you either accept that debt's going to hold you back or you have to set a path to um, a different direction which will allow you to transition bit by bit into that into that world. And that's the beauty of cloud computing. It's completely scalable. Um, and you don't have to do anything really additional to what you have. Um, you can scale the computing power, the memory storage, um, and the way that you network and, uh, and connect to things really quite flexibly. Um, and that's where I think the benefits would come from a brownfield situation. But it does require somebody to have that strategic approach to take those first steps to accept, okay, let's get onto the cloud Let's move on to things with different business models like OPEX business models rather than CAPEX. And let's start plotting a course to move our brownfield site onto um, cloud technology and, and see the benefits of that. Because what it does, it frees you up from the legacy of your architectural debt and allows you to start moving forward. Fascinating. Okay. Uh, uh, any further points or shall we jump over to our interview? I think we've thrown a lot at people already. Uh, <laughs> I was going, we've covered more than I was expecting to cover, so there you go. <laughs> well, it's fascinating stuff, and I'm sure we will revisit the topic at some point in the future. Uh, okay, thank you for that, Martin. Uh, we are now going to jump into our interview uh, with uh, a couple of people. We've just mentioned the Drama Project, uh, but we will be joined by Katie Milne and Adam Holloway. I will see you over there, Martin. All right, cheers. Okay, so in this interview portion of the third episode of the Atlas podcast, we're very happy to be joined by Katie Milne and Adam Holloway of the MTC, uh, most recently working on the drama project. Uh, Katie, if you'd like to introduce yourself. So hello, I'm Katie Milne. Thank you for having me. Um, and I'm the overall project leader for the drama project at MTC and the National Centre for Additive Manufacturing. And Adam. Yeah, hi, um, I'm Adam Holloway, I'm a senior engineer at the MTC, and I'm leading the digital portion of the drama project at the MTC. Fantastic, so good to have you here. Um, perhaps we should start with just a, a brief background on what the drama project uh, is slash was and what the hopes were to achieve. Okay, shall I? Shall I give that overview? You go so, um, for it. Go so for I'm it, the overall project lead at drama. The drama is all about accelerating the uptake of additive manufacturing in the UK, but the drama project itself is, is taking the first step towards doing that by creating facilities, knowledge and digital tools that supply chain companies can then use that help to help accelerate their adoption of additive. Um, and with ATS, we've been working on uh, reconfigurable workflow solutions uh, that will enable the additive manufacturing factory of the future. 
Um, when did you first hear about it? Because obviously you've worked for the MTC before the drama project of, uh, you know, came around, but it's quite one of the major projects in the UK, isn't it? So what, what, when did you first hear about that and what, what, how did you feel about it, getting involved with it? Drama. So, so drama was conceived after, in, in about 2014, we'd been working with a, um, a, a number of the aerospace primes on on benchmarking additive manufacturing processes, especially metal powder bed, which is one of very many processes. And we'd, um, we'd also done a kind of big project with Rolls-Royce Civil Aerospace, where they built what was at the time the biggest metal um, component that had ever been printed uh, at that time. So it was in 2014 and it was a front bearing house structure. So, so that was an incredible program to be part of. And we kind of began to think, my goodness, this is really disruptive because this technology, because not only is it, are you able to get geometric complexity, which is obvious the minute you touch it, you can also get lots of part consolidation. So it could drive a real change in the supply chain and structure. Um, so there's examples of part consolidation, which are the order of up to even 100 to 1. So you can redesign a whole system and get this massive part consolidation. So we thought, okay, this could really affect the supply chain. How are we going to make the supply chain ready for the change? And additives are very digital solutions. So the disruption is not just about process technology. It's also about that digital technology. Um, so, so the additive guys who were leading the project bid at the time brought in the digital engineering group at MTC and digital engineering got really excited. That's where I was at the time. So that was my first engagement as digital engineering. And we were like, there are so many things you could do here. Um, so we, we put the D in drama, basically. It would have just been Rama without it. <laughs> just less snappy. <laughs> I do like the fact that you're so excited about it. It's like, um, you know, when you get these kind of great opportunities to show off stuff in a, in a, in a real tangible way as well, isn't it? This isn't just a, a standard innovation project that kind of lives and breathes while innovation happens and a paper's written about it on the way out. This is something that's going to be living and breathing post-drama as well, isn't it? Yeah, we've, yeah. we've worked with a number of partners, including yourselves, ATS, to allow, allow them to develop their um, technology solutions within the programme. But beyond that, there's been a big supply chain engagement element. So we've worked with 22 other companies to develop either their technology or to take additive and digital technologies and apply them to their applications. Uh, we've got some really cool examples, people um, developing new hydraulic valves, new um, cooling systems for UAV engines. So we will have this big stack, I suppose, of inspirational demonstrators off the back of the program. And we'll actually help these companies step forward in application development and commercialization. That's brilliant, isn't it? And, and the pictures change so much from the 2014 politically um, and commercially around this space. Um, I, Adam, how did how do you get involved? I mean, obviously, we've we've been working together on the digital aspect of the project, but um, yeah, what was your what was your involvement, and how how fresh was this digital world to you? So, so my background was in um, simulation. So I was I was working on applying finite element analysis to development of manufacturing processes um, within the simulation group at MTC. So I had sort of quite a niche part of the of the digital engineering world that I was involved in. Um, but I was always very focused on additive manufacturing. 
and I think at the time I'd done a lot of projects where we were we were applying in in my case the digital technology of simulation to additive manufacturing, but it was a lot of kind of initial investigations and kind of technology demonstrators to kind of you know the companies are coming to us and saying oh, what can we do with additive um, but I think at that point we're starting to transition into actually yeah there's a real opportunity here so I need to start looking into this further so I think that the timing of it was really interesting and I think getting involved in that transition from you know making widgets to kind of have a little bit of a play to, to really thinking about well what does this mean for my business was really interesting. Yeah, and I, and I remember the kind of initial stages of the requirements. It was like the, the sweet shop scenario, wasn't it? We want everything, we want everything, and trying to go, <laughs> right, we want this really grand wedding cake that's got every single bells and whistles possible to, oh, is it a little cupcake? But, you know, I think we did pretty well to try and at least achieve the, the wedding cake <laughs> end of the scale. Um, if you talk about some of the stuff that's in, what's involved in drama from a digital point of view, what's what kind of tools are we playing with in drama? Yeah, well, I mean, it was a very complex problem we were trying to solve. And it, the, the, the use case that's at the forefront of the, of the digital element of the project is rapid um, part and process optimization. So the core thinking from the from the digital perspective is that we've got all these tools out there for modeling, simulation, analytics, and software to drive the process itself. Um, and in order to make those work successfully, we have to be able to feed them the right data. Um, you know, otherwise you get the classic garbage in, garbage out. And we wanted companies to be able to come to us and access those tools in a facility where we'd we dealt with the problem of accessing the data at the right time for them. So we weren't moving things around in, you know, USB sticks and um, ad hoc spreadsheets. Um, we could, you know, map out exactly what the what the tasks were, understand those processes and the data that was required for them and make sure that we can feed the right data in. Um, and that requires connectivity to a huge um, range of different data sources from, you know, the, the manufacturing equipment itself, but also right back into design and simulation, making sure we're picking out the right data and feeding in the right data. So there's a huge level of flexibility required for us. Mm, and, and there's something quite different to conventional um, manufacturing as well, because you talk about the simulation aspect of it. But when we think of conventional manufacturing, we're always thinking at the beginning of the um, design is the kind of your bill of materials and uh, you're thinking of the sub-assemblies and how everything goes together and as Katie referred to those could be a hundred components feeding into it but with additive it's pretty much powder and a, and a build file and crack on with it type of thing I know I've oversimplified that and it's not my area but it's very different that front front end of the um, engineering for additive isn't it it is yeah I guess the, yeah the the workflows can be much more complicated at, at that early stage, yeah, because you you have you have tools for um, you know component design like topology optimization, where you can create these really interesting structures that are very difficult to manufacture through through other means. But there's there's a whole different tool set and workflow that you that you can follow, um, and there's lots of different tools that you know you have to kind of integrate properly with each other in order to fully um, extract the value out of them. Mm. Exactly. And that's where trying to take conventional tool sets doesn't always work, I think. And that's where we've really looked at making it as flexible as possible to plug whatever we want into it and really 
bridging that gap between the, I think when people talk about Industry 4, they were talking about the introduction of um, uh, digital or internet technology into the industrial domain. And that's really what we've tried to achieve on the project is introduce that, um, the digital or the internet technology into, into manufacturing. Um, obviously, we're at that stage now that the, the project is coming to, to a, a close, but what's that transition like going to be, Katie? How, how are we going from the, the drama project into the actual um, additive centre? So um, for, with the partners we work with, including ATS, we'd, we want to have this persistent demonstrator. <laughs> By persistent, we mean it's always going to be live so that we can bring in companies and use it to stimulate their adoption of, of similar solutions and understand the integration, you know, the activities that are needed around it in order to implement it in their in, like industrial environments. On the other hand, we're also moving forward to trying to put in place an operational solution, um, which doesn't just cover our additive manufacturing facility, but covers uh, the entire process chain, all the way from design, as Adam was talking about, the design activities, through to inspection and post-processing and machining. And, and you mentioned assembly before, you know, there's no reason why this couldn't extend forward to assembly from that component manufacture mm. stage and, and link in um, our demonstration assembly uh, cells that we've got at the Manufacturing Technology Centre too in future. And, and how about the, the supply chain aspect of that? Because you talked originally about, you know, how that will affect them. Um, what kind of supply chain integration could you foresee? Well, um, there's there's certainly something, so a, a kind of minimum requirement, I suppose, for us very early on is being able to send tasks in and out. You know, so not all of that process chain in our facilities is done at our place. So we need to be able to have the workflow cover somehow things even leaving our what we do at MTC and coming back. Um, however, as, as Adam was saying, the facility is actually a pre-production facility. And so the other element is all around being able to pick up um, what's been developed on pre-production and being able to uh, take it and almost drop it in to an, another facility, a full production environment with similar equipment quite easily. And I think that's really the power of a solution like ATS, you know, because it's cloud-based is you can just... You could just lift it, put it down, and the same similar connectivity things could, could could work and the same workflows could be appropriate, it could be adapted slightly. Yeah, for us it's just to spin up a new tenancy so we protect the customer's data and then they're away, which takes literally minutes where before you think about all the servers you'd have to install or the, the operating systems and that the speed to... One of the um, things that we used to prevent these things was the preparing of the digital platform, but now it's there and it's really that final connection to the machine. There's still some work to do in that area to make that better. Um, but uh, I think that's going to take a collaboration with the ecosystem and machine providers and, you know, changing the way that those interfaces occur. Um, but it's, yeah. uh, it's definitely really moved things forward um, from, from where we were pro before the drama project to where we are now. Uh, moved it forward hugely in the digital world. Um, and it'd be good to see, like you said, that running across some of the conventional stuff as well, which will be uh, quite exciting. So um, coming to kind of the end of the interview, but are you ready for another drama? 
I guess this is the question. <laughs> or is it too early to tell which uh, which which uh, projects you might get involved with in the future? Um, so we are working on a, a major proposal at the moment for the supply chain, which is kind of based on barriers we haven't really started addressing in drama. So around things like validation, how do you validate acid manufacturing? The primes are doing a lot on that front, but really for additive to be unlocked for aerospace broad, more broadly, uh, then it then a level of sharing of things like approaches, um, simulation tools could could be really beneficial. Um, so so there's that. Beyond that program, we're really interested on doing something that picks up onto the supply chain element that you were talking about. So how how do we extend the functionality so that you can begin to um, connect between different sites, transfer quality data b between different sites and, and how that ecosystem evolve. You know, there's some emerging solutions from some of the really big uh, CAD CAE players on that front, but it, I think there's space for kind of some disruption there. So, and, and potentially for the UK to compete. So what, what can we do in that space? Brilliant stuff. Um... I don't know. I always hand this over to our, Al, uh, um, Alex at this point to see if he's got any killer questions. But uh... I wish I did. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm blown away. I've I've read a fair amount about the drama project and I've written a little bit for the website. Um, but it's it's such a fascinating topic, and I think we have discussed in this podcast and previously uh, that industry four idea of blurring the lines between the physical and the digital. But I think a project like this shows it sort of absolutely it seems it's it's those two previously disparate worlds are completely intertwined with something like this and sort of rely on and elevate each other um so yeah it's fascinating stuff well some of those simulation tools that adam was talking about are, are just fascinating aren't they they're really getting down there almost mm. into the atomic levels of things to work out how those structures are built and how they kind of almost grow organically if you like to uh, create um uh, strength within those shapes um and so they do need a fair bit of computing power to achieve those um but yeah and a lot of data so uh, good stuff uh, yeah excellent well uh thank you so much for joining us unless you have anything else you'd like to to pop across we uh we're really appreciative to have you here no thank you very much katie thanks adam and uh yeah thank you for having us we'll see you at the mtc very soon well that's it for another episode of the atlas podcast uh i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did martin well it was very interesting we covered some new subjects there which is great yeah and uh a great interview as well really looking forward to having them back yeah well the mtc have been a great partner of us uh, of ours in the innovation space for a number of years now and i think the uh, drama project is a a great culmination in those efforts absolutely look forward to seeing the future with them uh so as always i have a quote for you um this one's from steve jobs and he said let's go invent tomorrow instead of worrying about what happened yesterday can't change yesterday can you i'm not even sure if yesterday is even real you know no it doesn't feel like it today <laughs> it, it doesn't feel like it doesn't my memory's fading fast <laughs> good stuff well thanks martin and i'll see you next week cheers bye 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 
If you're looking for more information on the world of Atlas or if you have any questions at all, please head on over to weareatlas.com and let us know your thoughts.